Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, EJ, we have another head coach getting fired uh, very early on in his tenure this week. We have the Carolina Panthers once again refusing to die, and we have an entire division on pace to make the playoffs together. Lots to go over in our Week 16 recap and Week 17 preview. Jay, roll the intro. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to the Bootleg Football Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Brett Coleman. That is my lovely co-host, EJ Snyder. We have a shitload of things to go over this week, so I'm not even going to waste time. We're just going to get directly into news and notes. Number one, obviously, Nathaniel Hackett fired uh, very early in his Denver tenure, and yet still, somehow, this felt like a long time coming. Uh, He is the first... Non-Urban Meyer head coach, because that was more of an off-field thing. In terms of pure on-field reasons to be fired, uh, he's the first head coach to be fired in the middle of their first season since Pete McCulley in 1978. Uh, elite company to be in there, EJ. What's your what's your initial reaction to Thaneel Hackett getting the hatchet? <laughs> I'm not surprised, and I am at the same time. When you look at the what happened and what has been happening on the Denver sidelines all year, but especially what happened on Sunday. And this is one of those stories of tweets never sent. Hmm. We all have lots of tweets we've never sent, but I almost put out a tweet that said, hey, this is different. There are sideline fights and there are sideline fights, and these ones are not normal, and these are the kind that show a rift in the organization that get coaches fired. And I almost sent that. And then I was like, "Eh, I have to kick a dead horse. Everybody knows that this is burning ship. I won't do it. And I woke up less than 16 hours later to the news on Monday morning early, just like everybody else did. Nah, that's it. It's over. New owners of the Denver Broncos saying we're not going to tolerate, you know, the employees throwing shit all over the shop. Um, we're, We're done and you're done. And it's really notable because, if I'm not mistaken, you weren't alive in 1978. Yeah, I had a little while to go there. A little little <laughs> while before you were born. So when people go, oh, this happens, this doesn't happen. Coaches do not get fired in season in their first year. It hasn't happened since 1978. Besides Urban, Urban, really a different story. So we're talking about decades and decades since this has happened, especially with all the investment. And Pete McCauley wasn't making anywhere near the money that Daniel Hackett is, and it's not just inflation. Like, it's a serious investment now. And there really isn't anything to be gained. We're going to talk about who does and doesn't want to even touch the interim job, which is a whole nother thing. This is notable. 
it doesn't happen. It was really, 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 really bad, folks, to make this occur. But if there's one ownership group that can afford it, it's the Broncos because their owner's literally the richest owner in the entire league and has billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of dollars, even amongst billionaires. They're the rich ones. So uh, this is a drop in the bucket for them. They, they don't really care. And I think that Denver is uniquely positioned to make this type of move because this money is nothing to them. Um, what I found interesting was that Ajira Averro, uh, defensive coordinator, was approached and offered the interim job, turned it down, said he just wanted to focus on the defense. Um, found that fascinating because I think that that was his way of saying, I don't want anything to do with this Russell Wilson-led offense right now. I would rather that not tarnish any potential interviews or offers that I get to interview around the league. He's probably out of there. Um, I like Whoever they bring in, I can't imagine that that Avira wants to still be tied to this offense. He he just wants to go somewhere else and do his thing, and and you know maybe be the new Brandon Staley. Again, came from that same sort of coaching tree under the Vic Fangio general umbrella, um, and he will get interviews. He and D'Amico Ryan's and you know Ben Johnson are probably the three top of the list. I would say you know first time head coaching guys that are going to get interviews. Um, you know, maybe Eric Bieniemy, who we'll talk about in a little bit as well. But it's just, I just found it fascinating. There's only two games left to go, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't want this shit." I, I yeah, no, want, I don't want to touch Mm-mm. it. Uh, you know what's funny is I reached out to our buddy Brad Spielberger because I wanted, I wanted the Armageddon number, and he didn't want to give it to me. And I said, "All right, Brad, give it to me." If they designate Russ as a post June one cut, what's the oh? Number? It's gotta be like. 80 90 million right more yeah so he he just his first response in brad's defense he's a um he's a tactful guy and he said they they really can't do anything until 20 you know until the next year 20 end of 2023 and i was like no no give me the give me the armageddon number he ended up writing an article uh probably not because of me probably because everybody else was asking too uh the number for a post june one cut this year for Russ would be one hundred and seven million dollars. So Fuck. they literally, they uh, literally—it's not possible. No, no, and that's what he was trying to say nicely. Was nah, they just can't. I mean, you, you can't can. even you can't field a roster. There you go. You cannot cover your existing contracts that you need to fill your fifty-three with what's left over unless like everybody's on a one year one million dollar deal and they do have money already slated to other players on that team so they they can't do it um it but it will be fascinating to see how they handle it because i i think like you do that the franchise in general is much like Jiro evero right now and he's like we don't want anything to do with this so what do you do with a guy that's making a ton of money uh, has an office in the facility. Do you just lock him in his office on Sundays? Or, like, what do, you, what do you do with Russ? Because nobody wants him on the field leading this team. In fact, they actively don't want that, but they can't get rid of him financially. So it's a fascinating situation to see how that dynamic is going to play out. Do they just put him on paid leave and say, enjoy? I, something's going to happen. But 
what we see in the leftover here is that this is going to have to be a clean sweep. Whoever comes in is going to have all new coaches, full new culture. And it begs the question, does George Payton, who's the general manager, fairly fresh general manager, he's been at the helm two and a half years for the Broncos. Does he survive this or does ownership go? No, no, clean, clean sweep, everything out of the cupboards. Um, We'll have to wait and see on that one. But the rust situation bears watching because it's going to be fascinating. And I think it's unprecedented. I don't think a team has ever had so much invested in one player that it absolutely wants nothing to do with that. They just have to find a pasture to put him out in where nobody sees him. Um, it's very, very strange. Remember, this is one of the teams that passed on Justin Fields willingly for a corner. And we love Pat Sertan. He's an amazing corner. We said it at the time, he's going to work. But we're, in terms of positional importance and franchise priorities, they needed a quarterback. And they passed on a very good quarterback prospect who, you know, folks in Chicago with a much worse roster than what Denver has are very excited about what Justin Fields has in store for the future. And uh, yeah, if we're talking about front office changes, that's the decision that that would be the cause of that. Positional well, importance, or rather the back lack end, of positional importance. Yeah, the back end leak of this one is, uh, and I forget, I, I might have been Greg Rosenthal, but I could be misattributing it. So uh, not doing that on purpose, just can't remember who it was, said, you know, do you think the Broncos are ever going to admit that they hired Nathaniel Hackett because they thought they were getting Aaron Rodgers and then they just kind of had to eat it? That ha- There's no other reason. Yeah. And so they were like, yeah, come on, Nathaniel, that, that'll that be the carrot that lures. Oh, oh, no. Oh, damn. That might be part of the reason why they passed on fields in the first place and took a corner is they thought they were getting Rodgers. That that offseason, they thought they, they were probably going to trade for him. Yeah. Because why else would you pass? Yeah, it doesn't seem reasonable, uh, but there were other franchises that also took corners high and didn't take Justin Fields and could have used him. Uh, that's not the point. The point is, who boy in Denver. Uh, we'll talk about it a little farther down. We'll talk about Russ more, so we're not going to not gonna put too much else into it, but uh, unprecedented. Well, not unprecedented. Been a long time since it's happened. Very, very, very rare to fire a first-year coach in season, and Oh, there's going to be fallout, like more fallout to come on this one. We're not done shaking the tree quite yet. News and notes. Uh, number two, this one is is near and dear to my heart. J.J. Watt announced that he is retiring after this season, so we only get two more J.J. Watt games. And this has been kind of a resurgent season for him. Like he actually could get double-digit sacks this year, which, you know, we love to see a player kind of go out on top, especially one of his caliber. Uh, he is one of, if not my favorite player, Ever, you know, as a Texans fan, he's on the Mount Rushmore of of Texans, period, if not the greatest Texan of all time. One of the greatest defensive players at any position of all time. I'd put up that 2012 to 2015 peak with anyone. You know, Aaron Donald, Reggie White, Bruce Smith, like you, I would put him up against anybody. He's a three-time Defensive Player of the Year winner. He is 38th all-time in sacks, largely because of injuries, but he has 111.5 sacks, so he's in the the triple-digit club. 2010's All-Decade team, two 20-plus sack seasons, which is an NFL record, Uh, two-time sack leader, which is the NFL record tied that he has with TJ, his brother, five-time Pro Bowler, five-time first-team All-Pro, two-time second-team All-Pro, Comeback Player of the Year, and then perhaps the most important honor that he considers personally, Walter Payton, Man of the Year winner uh, back in 2017. 
he is undisputed one of the greatest. I would I would put him up like maybe it's the bias in me. I would say he's a top five defensive player ever just from seeing what healthy J.J. Watt could do from 2012 to 2015. There's very few people ever to get three Defensive Player of the Year awards. I think it's just him and LT. So, again, I know the peak was short, but it was such a high peak. Like, he is he is simply one of the greatest football players to ever put on a uniform, and he will sprint to Canton as a first ballot Hall of Famer. Almost guarantee it. I think you can take the almost off that. I will guarantee it. How about that? Yeah. If J.J. Watt isn't a first ballot Hall of Famer, I don't know what one is because of all of the things that you just mentioned. The peak was incredibly hot for fans of football who were not paying close attention to football at that time or, or just don't pay attention to the Texans because they're fans of their team. However you want a fan is fine. That's up to you. Not thinking that J.J. Watt is one of the top 10 defensive players of the last probably 25 years is 50. wrong. 50 years. Even. Yeah, is wrong. That peak was so hot, and it was so dominant. There wasn't anything you could do. Nobody knows that better than you from all the film breakdowns that he inspired you to start doing and have kept doing. He could tear an offense apart single-handedly. Everybody knew he was coming. Everybody tried everything, and I do mean everything. There was some kitchen sink stuff that offenses tried to keep J.J. Watt from completely mucking up their day. Sometimes it did work. Very rarely, though. It usually didn't work. He still mucked it up despite, you know, double teams and chips. Sometimes straight-up triple teams, sometimes just running literally almost every play away from his side. Didn't matter. He'd still chase it down from the backside. He still found a way to make an impact. He was LT-like in that way in that everybody knew, everybody tried everything, and it still usually didn't work. He had enough talent and pure drive to overcome that. So pretty crazy career. Bummer that we won't see him anymore am happy for him that his what turns out is going to be his final season was a good one was a productive one we got to see him again be a factor uh that offenses had to game plan for not in the same way at his peak but if you don't pay attention to jj watt even today he's gonna make you pay and and that's a nicer way to go out than a lot of players get to so i'm happy for him that he gets that anybody that you can say Within their own generation, you know, let's say it's a 15-year span. Anybody who can say that their only peer is the greatest three technique to ever play the game, Aaron Donald, the only one that's even in the conversation with him, um, they're a pretty fucking good football player. So, JJ, congrats on retirement. Uh, congrats on, you know, having a young baby boy that you're going to go home to. You're leaving the game as healthy as you possibly can uh, with as much money as you've made. You're, you're set for life. You got your health. You're only 33. Go enjoy being a dad. So congrats to you, JJ. Uh, wonderful career. Amazing career. Um, and then uh, on a, a much more somber note, uh, news and notes number three, Tua is in concussion protocol again, unfortunately. We found that out uh, Monday, I believe. And there's a lot of concern because people are kind of going back trying to find like, okay, what was the hit that caused this? Because he, he didn't. Maybe he didn't even realize he was symptomatic till the next day. I have no idea what the story is behind it. Um, 
but you know people have found a hit where he kind of slammed his head against the turf which is a very similar uh, way that he was concussed early in the season this is I believe his third concussion of the year which is really really scary shit I'm not a doctor but I don't feel it's safe for him to play again this year for his own safety because three concussions is this can cause really really bad permanent damage for him and I I I would rather see Tua play for the next decade than play this January. Like, I know playoff spots are on the line. I get it. Um, this is this is serious stuff. It needs to be taken seriously. And I think the NFLPA will be closely monitoring this because, again, we're talking about three in, like, a two-month period. That's, ugh, that's sketchy stuff. But, um, you know, we wish him good health. Obviously, before the hit that we think caused the concussion, he was playing pretty well. And then after that hit... He threw three picks and had a really rough second half. So I would understand if that was the hit that did it because he just seemed off in the second half of that game and nobody really understood why until the next day. Um, It's just scary shit. And I, again, I'm not a doctor, but if he takes the field again this season, I would be really, really worried about him. I'm not going to talk about Tua's health in specific because we aren't doctors and we don't know whatever his particular case are case is uh brain health is very individual some people can take multiple big hits to the head and not ever show concussive symptoms other people can turn their head too quickly and end up with concussive symptoms what i will say is the the general book on brain health as it as it relates to concussions is that multiple concussions without a full healing process are the worst and the effects can be exponential so it's not just one plus one plus one is three it's one plus the next one that you get within the healing window which we're definitely talking about um within a couple of months is is worth two so it's one and two is three for the first two and then if you get another one which is what we're talking about here we're talking about a third concussion within a very short period of months goes up the charts again and can be worth four or six or 12 or 15 like multiple the damage stacks if it's not allowed to fully heal and at this point, with three in a very short defined window of time, he is well within that danger zone of extra damage just from them stacking. Not that mm-hmm. each one was terrible. Um, like you said, took a while to even probably identify the hit, but it's very personal. Again, a very small trauma can cause big concussive syndromes in one person and a very large one, none in somebody else. So I'm not going to talk about two in general. I'm not a doctor. I'm not his doctor. If you stack concussions in a short period of time, every doctor that deals with neuroscience will tell you that's a bad thing. Don't do it. Like it gets worse and it gets more dangerous and more scary the more you do that. So you really need to take it easy and let it heal completely as much as it possibly can. And then we'll see. There's no determination of you can go back to your prior activities or not. It's just, again, an individual basis. We gave it enough time. You're not showing any symptoms. You haven't for some time. Are you cleared to go do your thing again? So this season for Tua, that means 
He's in a very dangerous spot. He already got put back on the field before he should have. We saw that, and then, you know, the NFL stepped in, and doctors got changed and whatever else because he was in a very dangerous situation and allowed to be so. Shouldn't have been there. He was, and now, again, uh, before we even get out of this season, it's concerning. Yeah, and I just want to see him play in 2030, not just this season, you know. And I, I, I worry that if there is even a 10% chance that something catastrophic could happen, we have to treat it as an absolute certainty and prioritize the health of the player. I, I truly believe that. And I, I know phys- football's a physical game. It's a violent game. Anything can happen on any snap. I would still err on the side of let's at least reduce the chance. You know, let's at least be safe about it so that we can see him play next year. Because I would like to see him play next year. He's a fun player. He's a good player. At some point, somebody's got to be the adult in the room and say, it's not fucking worth it for an 8-9 record. And, and you know, being the 5 seed or the 7 seed, it's not fucking worth it to ruin this guy's life. Or at least have a chance of ruining this guy's life. Yeah, I would say it has nothing to do with record. Could be a three and ten record, could be a ten and one record. I don't care because we just talked about a guy who's had plenty of his own injuries and is retiring generally healthy, JJ Watt. Mm-hmm. He's thirty three. Like thirty three is young in terms of overall lifespan. In terms of NFL lifespan, it's getting up there. It's pretty old. Yeah. Pretty old, especially for the position he plays. Two is much, much younger. And if this, I'm not saying it's going to, but if this continues, if he continues to rack up a concussion a season or two concussions a season, can't really be allowed to continue for his own safety, for his own long-term health, the damage we know concussions do to a brain. He's a really young guy. He's got a lot of life left in front of him, hopefully, like decades and decades. So I don't care if he was 10 and 1 in his 20s. He's not. I don't think it matters. I don't care if he's 3-10 and and wants to just keep pushing because he's a competitor. Like, the record has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with those decades after football and what his quality of life is going to be. Is he going to be waking up with symptoms randomly, you know, mornings when he's 40 and have days when he has to be shut in a dark room, take migraine medicine? Who knows? Like, nobody's going to care about that, but I don't think it has anything to do with the record because I'm with you. If there's a chance of that happening, we have to treat that as a primary deal and say, mm, maybe you shouldn't do it right now, regardless of playoff seating, record, anything else, because it's hard to see those things. I get it. When I was in my 20s, I did not care about those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not in my 20s anymore. I very much care about those things, and I can look backwards and say, hmm, it's a chance, but it's a very difficult one, and you need to weigh it appropriately. I just, I get, I get... I get very worried about it because, you know, when I was in TV and I would work with these players that were, you know, 35, 37, 38, sometimes older, sometimes late 40s, early 50s. Um, And like, I'm not going to say who, but like we'd have conversations about how they're doing health wise, especially with head injuries. Some of them are not doing well. Some of them are not doing well at all. And it scared the shit out of me. I know it scares the shit out of them too. And I, I just, I don't, I don't want that to happen to them because I've, I've seen what it does and it's bad. It's bad shit. So hopefully people 
err on the side of caution and like medically take to his uh, future into account here. Um, all right, let's talk about something a lot less Not scary. That, yeah, <laughs> a lot less scary, uh, and that's uh, well. Not that less scary. The Jets' offense is <laughs> good lord. Uh, uh, it, it's bad. Going back to our our final uh, TNF stream of the year, uh, which was Jets hosting Jaguars battle of former number one and number two overall picks, Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson. We were live for that game, and now that we've kind of had some time to let it marinate over the holiday weekend, going back watching the tape, um, you know, kind of examining the Jets and Jaguars seasons as a whole to get better context for this game. I think one thing has become abundantly clear, and that is that the Zach Wilson era is over. Um, And there's so many different things to unpack here and so many different reasons why people might point out. There's the the whole angle that people are taking, like, oh, well, we should have seen this coming personality-wise. He's like a, you know, a Johnny Menzel. I don't buy that shit. Um, Like, I get it. Some people held biases against him because of his upbringing. Obviously he came from a wealthy family. His uncle, I think it was like founded jet blue and is like gazillionaire, you know, looks like a, a, a Disney channel star, you know, went to BYU star quarter. Like people just had these preconceived biases about the type of person he was completely ignoring the fact that all of his BYU teammates and coaches went to bat hard for him in the pre-draft process Said he was a good dude, nice kid, good teammate, hard worker, all that kind of stuff. The Johnny Manziel comparisons were were a little much for me. I think the the much simpler answer is he's just not a good quarterback, you know, and it, that's just what it comes down to. He's just not a good quarterback, does not see the field well, accuracy from the pocket has completely gone in the tank, um, still obviously has ridiculous arm talent. He made a couple throws um, two weeks ago. There's one that was like 57 yards in the air. Like, kid's got a cannon. But all the other little stuff that we had concerns about when he was coming out, you know, where it's like, hey, (laughs) you can't just make a living off off schedule plays. You got to do the on schedule stuff, too. He's never learned how to do the on schedule stuff from the pocket, you know, taking layups, making easy throws, moving the chains. He kind of made his living at BYU off of, you know, getting out of the pocket and throwing this crazy 50 yard bomb to to like Dax Milne or whoever it was that it was his receiver there. You can't get away with that in the NFL all the time. Like even Patrick Mahomes, who does all that stuff, is also elite at staying on schedule and working from within the pocket. And he just never never got there, never developed. And I think there's a million different reasons why that could have been, but I don't necessarily think it's a personality thing. He's not a Johnny Menzel. He's just not a good quarterback. It is what it is. So, you know, the Jets have a better one in Mike White, and they still have a shot to go to the playoffs and their defense is amazing. So they could go on a little bit of a run here in the AFC, but it's not going to be with Zach Wilson this year. And it's not going to be with Zach Wilson next year. I think it's over and they are potentially, unfortunately for them back in the market for a quarterback. I'll make a distinction and that's, he's not a good NFL quarterback. He's a very good college quarterback. True. And this is one of the things that people don't understand about the work that I and you do getting ready for the draft is they might be BYU supporters and they might say, hey, he kicked the shit out of all of our rivals. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. And what I mean is 
what you need to succeed changes. And we had concerns about some of those areas. I largely had concerns about on-schedule plays in the pocket. And it's not that he can't make them. We've actually even seen it this season. There was a game earlier this season we said, it looks like he got it. And it was in the second half, and he came out, and he made on-schedule plays from the pocket. And I don't know why, because, again, I don't know Zach Wilson. I don't know what he's being coached to do. If you listen to folks like J.T. O'Sullivan, a lot of that, whatever goes on in the room, is very important in terms of the evaluation. But I will say that he doesn't do it very often. And maybe it's because he's bored. Maybe it's because he just he just wants to unleash the cannon, right? I'm not sure. Maybe it's because he's confused. Maybe it's because he hasn't seen it all. I don't know. You know, I just don't know what I will say is what my eyes tell me, which is he doesn't do it very often for whatever reason. And in order to be a successful NFL quarterback at a high level, you need to do that stuff much more often than he does. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to be in New York is the is the clarity that we get from Thursday night. Anybody that's saying, oh, he'll come back for a, a second or a third or a fourth or whatever act we're on. With the Jets, no, he won't. He was benched while healthy for a fourth-string quarterback who ignited the offense when he came in for a short period of time. Didn't end up winning the game, but they looked better. They moved more with Strebler than they did with Zach Wilson. That's it, folks. That is the death knell. Not for his NFL career because he is a high-round pick and draft status stays with you like a gold chain around your neck. Someone will say... I can fix him. He will get another shot and most likely by statistics, another shot after that. If it doesn't mm-hmm. work out, he will get at least two more. So his NFL career is far from over. His career with the Jets is completely over. We called it on the Thursday night live stream. We're like, that's it. He's healthy. They're not even couching it with, oh, he was nicked up. We, you know, we're worried about him. No, they healthy pulled him for a fourth stringer who was a preseason hero. Like, nah, you're done. He was already on shaky ice. That's it. That is the organization pulling the plug on national TV going, nope, the Zach Wilson experiment is over. So he'll continue to play in the NFL, but it won't be for the Jets. Uh, not I think it's going to be for the Broncos. <laughs> oh, I do. Don't I mean, he's, he's, wish I'm, that. He, he's not from Colorado, but like, you know, Provo's, I mean, he grew up in like, I think it was like Salt Lake City suburbs. It's not that far from Denver. You know, semi close to home. I get it. I know it's why it's not you're like it. he's worse than Wilson. Have haven't the Broncos <laughs> fans suffered enough, Brett? Give him a break. No. So Zach Wilson, we're not going to see the Jets. Uh, do have a way to continue this season, and we will see them. You're right. They're back in the market for the guy because Joe Flacco is not the guy. Mike White, long term, is not the guy. They're looking for the guy. And they have a couple options at bridge, which is good. The defense is very good, but windows are short. They've assembled a ton of offensive talent. Um, and credit to Robert Sala, we didn't see the same kind of thing on the Jets sidelines that we did on the Broncos sidelines, even with a quarterback who was very highly touted, faltering with a loaded roster. So similar situations, very different result, speaks to Sala and his team's leadership and ability to keep that in hand and keep that team driving forward, unlike the Broncos. But Zach Wilson's done in New York. They are in the market for a quarterback. Jacksonville's got their guy, on the other hand, if we flip to the other sideline. Like oh, Trevor's, yeah, they Tre- do. <laughs> Trevor's the dude. 
They don't need a quarterback. They've got their quarterback-coach combo. They're building talent as well. Their arrow pointing up. I would not say the Jets' arrow is pointing down. It is at quarterback. But as a team, I would say it's it's level driving forward. They have a shot, path to the playoffs. And honestly, if they find their guy, whether that's you know a bridge and a guy to develop or a guy that they're going to bring in as a talented, again, touted rookie starter next year, um, they're they're not far off. Joe Douglas has built a great roster, and and this is not gloom and doom for Jets fans. This is eh, it's not going to be the Zach Wilson thing. Might be another half step until we get there, but this is not a complete rebuild. This is just a Zach Wilson didn't work out. It happens. We'll find the next one. Uh, now speaking of Trevor Lawrence, with this win, which by the way was the first road primetime win. The Jaguars have had since Bill Clinton was president, literally. Yep. It was the year 2000. It was like November 2000, something like that. Um, insanely long time, but uh, first road win in primetime for the Jags since then. Um, and, you know, with that win and the Titans losing this weekend, the Jags are actually in the driver's seat for the AFC South. They just have to win out, obviously beating Tennessee in the last week of the season. They make the playoffs which after starting the way they started where they were a they would have been a massive statistical anomaly to come back and make the postseasons from where they were at which i think was like a one in five start something like that um to come back and fight their way back and still make the postseason or likely make the postseason at this point because the titans are kind of a mess it speaks to you know, how well Doug Peterson was able to hold that locker room together and how many quotes have we seen from Jags players throughout the year saying like they would take a bullet for Doug Peterson. They adore him. They love him. Trevor Lawrence has ascended to, you know, you know, not just being the quarterback, but the face of the franchise and a leader in the locker room. They are a very dangerous at the moment below 500 football team that could finish slightly above 500, but they're going to be on a roll heading into January and I'll tell you what, you know, if they're hosting a, a, a five or six seed, like, say, Chargers team or Ravens team, I, I don't feel good about that for, for the opposition. I kind of feel like they might actually get to the divisional round here. And once you're in the divisional round, all bets are off. It really is. All bets are off. Like, anything can happen divisional weekend. Jags are fun, again. And I, I we're a little bit ahead of schedule here, EJ, not going to lie. A little bit ahead of schedule, but... God bless him. The NFL is better when Duval's good. I I think so. It has a lot to do with getting rid of those two-tone fade uniforms, I think. Because yeah. <laughs> those things were hideous, and the current Jacksonville fits are nearing elite. They're really, really good. Uh, all joking aside about uniforms, it is a fun team, and it's more fun to have a fun team. I don't care whether they're winning their own division. They might, which is amazing. But this is a team that competes and challenges and does interesting things and has a quarterback that can pull you back in the last couple of minutes, which means kind of every game is exciting. And, yes, the NFL is better when there are more teams like that. Now, if they continue to push that and get to the point where it's Jacksonville saying, hey, it's our division and you come through us, and they've proven that and start to prove that over the next two or three years with Trevor sort of solidifying his place as one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL, it's going to be even more fun in Jacksonville. It's going to get back to the heydays of Brunel and all those guys, Fred Taylor, when when the Jacksonvilles were scary, legit scary, and nobody wanted to play them. 
They're they're not quite there yet, but they're knocking on that door, and that's and that's fun. Um, by the way, I looked it up. They started two and six, so starting two and six and making the playoffs here is is pretty insane. Uh, looking at our prize pick slip that we had that night, by the way, one little note on that: we did win one hundred fifty dollars on EJ's slip. I filled out one. He filled out one. We hit for uh, literally 150 on this one. He had Jamichael Hasty over seven and a half rushing yards. Hasty had 10. Uh, he had Riley Patterson. He broke his own rule, and he went with a kicker. He had Riley Patterson over one and a half field goals. Patterson had four that night. Um, he broke even on Garrett Wilson. Uh, it was the line was at four receptions. Wilson had four, and Michael Carter he had over 10 and a half receiving. Carter had 44, and then he just barely missed out on a fiver with Trevor Lawrence by two attempts needed two more passing attempts he had him over 32 and a half he had 31 but we still uh, won $150 on that slip bringing our total winnings this year on the single deposit we had at the beginning of the season in September uh, $100 deposit which we used our own promo code surprise picks matched it <laughs> for another free $100 on the deposit uh, total winnings this year, $1,196 just on our Thursday night slips. We're doing okay, EJ. Um, I, I want to see the percentage breakdown of how much of that came off second half slips. Oh, uh, probably a lot. Yeah, probably 30 lot. or 40% would be my guess. And, of course, we had the big win on Thanksgiving, which propelled us uh, really for the rest of the season to be playing largely with house money. Um, but it's been a ton of fun. Major thanks to Prize Picks for making the Thursday night live streams possible. Um, we've really enjoyed that, the interaction with all of you, the great questions, uh, and, of course, seeing whether or not uh, some quarterback can grab a couple extra completions in garbage time. I, oh, God. I, I'm, I, did, I did a separate $500 slip because I, I was like, it. oh, let me do an all-weather slip for this weekend because yeah. I I, the weather was complete shit. And I was yeah. like, I'm going to put $500 down. And I, I, <laughs> I know I missed 10 grand by literally one attempt for Mac Jones. Literally one attempt. It broke my fucking heart, EJ, but it's okay. I'm, it's okay. We're still way up on the year. I'm glad to see you had some tape left over from Christmas and were able to mend your bleeding heart. Oh but my God, uh, I was beside myself, but it's okay. We're up on the season, significantly up on the season. And we still have a long way to go. Remember, prize, like you can do it all the Sunday games, the Monday games, playoffs. Like we're going to be doing playoff slips every single week, you know, when we're previewing and reviewing playoff games. Um, Super Bowl, like all of it. You can play prize picks all the way through the end of the year. And of course, other sports too baseball, basketball. Yeah, they had a free bas free basketball square this weekend for yeah. uh, Jokic. Yeah, you could do whatever you want with it. So, again, if you're interested in playing not just for football but for anything else, uh, promo code BOOTLEG will match your deposit up to that first $100. You know, go wild. See what you can win because, you know, as long as Trevor Lawrence throws the ball, <laughs> you can win a lot. Uh, but with that, EJ, why don't we get to uh, the more positive stories of the week with three up. Three up number one this week, we have the Cowboys upending, narrowly upending, the Gardner Minshew-led Eagles. A whole lot to take away from this game, and so I'll kind of do rapid fire through my thoughts. Number one, the Eagles showed that they are not a solely Jalen Hurts-dependent operation. Obviously, he makes a massive difference, but they were still able to put up you know 30-plus points behind Gardner Minshew. Gardner Minshew, he had some really nice throws. 
The difference, I would say, was a combination of two errant throws from Minshew. They got picked off by the Cowboys DBs who played. Um, you know, obviously they gave up theirs, but they, they paid it off with turnovers. Minshew missed by like six inches on a couple throws, and they paid it off with interceptions and then went down and scored. But it wasn't just the picks and the fumbles. It was the fact that when the Cowboys got those extra opportunities, Dak Prescott really paid them off. Like he made some truly phenomenal throws in this game. I felt like the pinnacle point that turned it in Dallas's favor was late in the game. It was a third and a 30 and the Eagles called like a, a, a variation on two invert. So you had the nickel screaming back to play a deep half. You had, it might've been Darius Slay who's kind of sinking deep underneath it. And you're really only calling that if you don't believe that they're going to try to hit a far hash hole <laughs> shot. Like you like you think it's possible, but you don't think they're even going to try it because it's a ridiculously hard throw to make. And Dak made that throw. I think it was T.Y. Hilton that caught it. And it was unbelievable. Again, third and 30. And he's like, screw it. <laughs> I'm going to throw this ball and there's nothing you could do about it. Hit the whole shot. Um, massive, it was like 50-yard gain, set him up for a touchdown shortly after that. And then there was the fumble and then another touchdown and things really got rolling for Dallas. But that third and 30, if Dak didn't hit that throw, Philly very well could have won that game, even with Minshew's picks and the, and the two fumbles. Like One of them, I think, was on Sanders. One of them was kind of a mesh point fumble. But, you know, so my overall takeaway is the Eagles are still a great team. It's hard to win when you turn it over four times, but they still got close. I think if Jalen Hurts is in there and doesn't throw those two picks that Minshew threw, you know, obviously I would have probably favored Philly there, but the Cowboys are a great team in their own right. They paid it off. Dak really put the team on his back when the run game was kind of slugging it out and just getting three-yard gain, three-yard gain, three-yard gain. I really want to see these teams meet again in the playoffs and get a proper Dak versus Jalen showdown. Because if Dak plays like that again, and Jalen plays like how he's played this year, whatever the over is, you could put it at any number, and I'm going over it. I don't even care. Like, that's a 38-39 coming down to the last play type game if I ever saw it. And I really, really hope we get it. As NFL fans, I certainly hope we get that game this year. Because there is a lot of good stuff on both sides of the ball. My thoughts are pretty straightforward. I have three of them. First one, we talk a lot about quote-unquote skill position players on this podcast. And I hate that term because all players on an NFL field are skilled. Great play on the lines. On both sides of the ball, both lines. This game, these two teams, great offensive lines, great defensive lines. So many talented players high draft picks. If you like line play, this is an all 22 to go back and watch because there is a lot going on on every play on both sides. doesn't matter which way you're going, which series. Just if you like line play, this is pure candy for all that. Sweat's interception, by the way. We tend to talk about the Philly defensive line as this one amorphous unit. Oh, yeah, Philly defensive line, all those players. Sweat's interception, pick six. Oh, my God. Whatever. Like, <laughs> that was stupid good. Whatever. Stupid good. Yeah. So, so many other great plays on the inside that are less flashy. Check it out. Minshew largely is who we thought he was or is. 
as we said last week, he's going to throw it up. And the first drive, really the first quarter, was a sort of microcosm of the Gardner Minshew experience. He came out slinging. He came out, found open guys, threw it to guys who were covered one-on-one tight, threw a bad pick right at the beginning of the second. And one thing I thought, and I know this is going to catch me a lot of fire, is if you, like, put black and white filter over this game film and took out, say the two plays that were picks, and we'll talk about that. Mm. Minshew looks a lot like Brock Purdy. More, even not that Purdy's not aggressive down the field, but Minshew has more of that kind of YOLO gene in him. But I would say, like, if you're getting him into it, it's like, okay, we're doing RPO, get it out quick, get it out quick, again, see it throw. He comes, comes from that air raid background, which is very much like a okay, there's three different ways this routes can go. You're reading leverage, you're throwing off leverage, we're going quick, we're going quick. Like, you get five plays in your head, you're saying one word at the line, we're going, 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 going. Oh, we got one-on-one, go ball. Like, that, it's it's very similar, I would say. Minshew is more talented, though, but also can get a little bit too much dip on his chip sometimes, which we saw in this game. <laughs> That's the one. And when I say take out, everybody's say you can't take out the interceptions. I know you can't take out the interceptions. So it's a little bit like Minshew and Purdy who play similarly. They're frenetic. They're smaller players. They're quick in the pocket. They're quick with the ball. They will throw it into tight coverage. So that part all looks similar. But what we talked about with Brock Purdy that's not normal is that he's reduced all the negative plays that Jimmy would have taken in the Niners offense. Minshew sprinkles those in right Mm -hmm. and it's not um, unique to this start we've seen that throughout his tenure he will make all those plays that you love from Brock Purdy you make all those quick game plays but a couple of times a game he will give the opposition a chance and he did it in this game and Dallas capitalized and on the Dallas offensive side CD is the guy Again, we talked about the Dallas receiving core last year, kind of like we talk about the Philly defensive line all the time. Oh, they have all these good guys, and they're all making plays. And, yeah, you know, it would be even better with Amari, but Amari moved on, and they're still good. This year, that reduced. They lost a lot of those guys, and CD has become that guy. He's approaching that new Hopkins status of Mm -hmm. alpha that when he's out of the lineup, they are not the same. They're a very different receiving core, and they can't come up with all those. Got to have it the kind of throws that we saw last year with, you know, Devontae Adams for the Packers, like, hey, it's third and nine, we got to have it. We're just throwing it Devontae's way, he's going to get it. Dak was just throwing it CD's way, and he converted. And this is not a this week thing. This is over the last month, CD has morphed into that guy. You need a big one, you throw it at CD, he'll he'll pick it up for you. What's so fascinating is... In the beginning of the year, he wasn't that. No, like, he, he was, was not. Really, he was struggling for what we expect from, you know, CD Lamb, like the, what we were used to at OU and coming out, and he had some really, really awesome plays um, early in his career. Like up until I'd say a little before Halloween, we we're kind of like, what's going on here? Like he's not. He there's some flashes, but the consistency wasn't there. There were some really bad drops. There were some routes where like. Our, our, he just gets completely bullied and it just looked off. And then like once November hit, he completely took off, became a whole different player. And now, as you say, like the new DeAndre Hopkins is a pretty fair comparison. And that's terrifying for the rest of the NFC. Yeah, we were like, they really lost more than we thought they did. And man, they can't wait until Gallup gets back. And then 
Gallup gets back and all of a sudden CD's like, nah, I got it. Throw it mm-hmm. at me. 30 yards down the field, in coverage, don't care. Like, my ball, going to get it. You know, you need an eight-yard eight, eight yard hook on third and five, throw it at me. I will get it. Don't care if he's draped on me. And he's morphed into that guy, which is very important. We've, we've time and again on this podcast, come back to how important it is to have that guy on an NFL offense and how many series and plays that's going to help you continue. And Dak knows right now, if he throws it to CD, the drive's keeping on going. Mm-hmm. And that's a massively important thing. Tony Pollard showed all the things we love from Tony Pollard, quickness, ability in the passing game, ability in the running game. He he really kept that driving. But I'm with you. I want healthy Jalen Hurts versus healthy Dak Prescott and the Cowboys to clash for a meaningful playoff you know, result and see what happens because that would be really, really fun football. So let me look it up right now because at the ESPN playoff machine going into week 17, Philly's obviously slated to be the first seed. Dallas is slated to be the fifth seed. So if they meet in the divisional round, it would mean Minnesota would have to beat Washington and San Francisco would have to be the Gi- have to beat the Giants. And then we would get a one versus a five. Dallas would have to beat Tampa. That's actually looking fairly likely out of all the scenarios all of that sounds fairly chalky so we might get it and that would be a treat a postseason treat for nfl football fans because it would be best on best from the same division we talked about this at the top the entire nfc east is looking like they could end up in the playoffs as opposed to the nfc south which can't manage a winning record amongst the four of them so Haves and the have-nots, but let's see the haves go at it for a, a real result in the postseason. That would be awesome. Uh, let's get to three up number two here. The other, uh, you know, potential one seed on the opposite side of the coin over in the AFC, the Chiefs. Depending on what happens with this uh, this upcoming game between Buffalo uh, and Cincy, if Buffalo loses this game, it's, it's almost I think it's almost guaranteed that KC would be then the first seed. Um, they would have to somehow lose against either, uh, let's see, who do they play here? They play against Denver. (laughs) No fucking way they're losing to Denver. And then the Raiders, very likely they would beat the Raiders. So uh, that Monday game, which we'll get to later in the show, massively impacts uh, Kansas City's first seed chances. But speaking specifically about this last game against Seattle, which I felt was kind of their last potential hurdle of the year, they definitely took care of business. The offense, for what we normally expect from them, had a relatively mild day. Third, you know, three out of eleven on third down, less than three hundred total yards, two twenty passing, seventy-seven rushing. It's like less than four yards a carry. Only had twenty-four minutes time of possession, but they still put up twenty-four points, which is a good day, especially in that weather. And they were three out of three in the red zone. And I think that from an efficiency standpoint and a situational football standpoint, they still were one of the more dangerous offenses in the entire league this week. Again, the point total wasn't crazy, but if you're getting down in red zone opportunities and you're capitalizing on all of them with really creative stuff like, oh, let's do a, a like a, a tap pass sweep to Kadarius Tony and have Trey Smith take somebody's life on national television to pave the way and... Oh, God, uh, the second passing touchdown, I forgot to send it to you, was like a masterclass in 
play design and forcing a defense to break its own rules. They played like a a match cover three. Uh, if you're familiar with like Rip Liz, like Nick Saban terminology, mm-hmm. they motioned into a two by two, and they were going to get Jet McKinnon out as a fast three to the flat. And they did that because they knew that in match three, the number two has to get carried by the by the seam defender, and the corner has to stay on number one vertical because there's no safety help. So the corner has to play it like way over the top because he can't risk like a double move or a, a seven or anything like that. Has to get up up top. And so when they ran that little snag to create a traffic jam for the linebacker who has to match the running back to the flat. Because again, remember the corner's not pushing in match three. It has to get vertical. So the linebacker is the one who's on him. They created that little traffic jam and McKinnon got out there so quick and Mahomes threw it so quickly that it became a really favorable one-on-one in space. Like the corner was really late to peel off. And if you get McKinnon one-on-one in space, full speed with the ball early, it's a done deal. And that's how they got that second touchdown. And watching the film on this one, that was the play that made me realize, like, okay, the stats weren't amazing, but in terms of situational design and execution, I still felt like every time they got into the red zone, they were going to succeed. And they did. Because this is still one of the most prepared, well-coached, well-schemed teams in the entire National Football League. And if they get the first seed... If Buffalo drops this one to Cincy and Kansas City gets the first seed, they are going to the Super Bowl. I really do believe that because, my God, it's not just Mahomes you have to deal with. It's the coaching staff, and this coaching staff is so good, EJ. They're so good. And we have become a bit jaded by that, and that's my takeaway from this game. It's not that Casey won or took care of business. They did. We somewhat expected them to do. That, if the Seahawks had won this, it clearly would have been an upset. Not out of the range of possibility. The weather was terrible. Well, I mean, weather was normal for this time of year in case. Meanwhile, people in Buffalo were like, fuck you, it's terrible. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there was that. What I want to focus on is we even kind of glaze over this because as NFL storyline followers, we like change. And when Tom Brady was good in New England for 20 years, it got boring. It was expected. We knew he was the GOAT. We knew he was going to take care of business. He knew he didn't march into Foxborough in December and take a game. And if he did, it became highly notable because it was the first one in four or five years. We've become a little bit the same way about the Chiefs. We shouldn't. Eric Bieniemy is, again, once again, this is not a new storyline either, leading an NFL master class and calling an offense for all the reasons you just talked about. But he's been doing it so well for so long and not getting head coaching jobs that we just kind of go, oh, yeah, he's doing it again. We shouldn't do that. It's not normal. People said Casey will miss Tyreek Hill. He brings an element to that offense that they're not going to be able to replace. They're going to have to focus two or three guys on kind of carving up his role in his yards, and they will suffer. Now, we said on this podcast in the preview episode, eh, we don't think suffer. We think suffer's a little bit strong. We think they'll be fine. They'll be they'll, different. They'll change. They'll, they'll change, change, but yeah. they'll be fine. Don't, don't you know, presage the death of the KC offense because Tyreek Hill's moving on. We don't think that's appropriate. Well, we thought they'd miss him a little. They don't. KC's offense ranks first in the entire league this season 
in the following stats. Points per game, yards Mm. per game, Mm. yards per play, pass yards per game, first downs per game, third down conversion percentage, fourth down conversion percentage. They're first, number one in the NFL in every one of those. They don't miss him at all. And it is because that coaching staff and Pat Mahomes fused together is something that we just take for granted. And we shouldn't on either side. Pat is great. The coaching staff is great. It's not either or. This isn't like, oh, was it Russ or Pete or who's the who's the genius here, Bill Belichick or Tom Brady? No, uh-uh. Great together. Pat Mahomes, great, great quarterback. The Casey coaching staff, great, great coaching staff. They are together, and they are first in all those categories for a reason. It's not a fluke. And they are going to march, and you don't want to play this team because they are going to be schemed up to beat you. They are going to be well-practiced, and Pat is going to do a few things a game to keep drives going. It is not a team you want to mess up against, and it puts a lot of weight on that Cincy Buffalo game, which cough, cough is on the watch list for a reason. Um, And it has been all season. We knew that was going to be a late season game, barring some kind of crazy quarterback loss that it was going to be a big game late in the season for both teams. And Casey's just sitting there in the catbird seat, waiting for the result going, you know, we'll go either way, but you know, one way makes it easier for us. One way a little bit harder, but we're first in all these things. So you you guys have a nice game. One of the stats you forgot to, to throw in there, and perhaps one of the most important stats, if not the most important stat of all, is average scoring margin per game. Again, this is what the average Chiefs result is. There's only 11 teams in the NFL that have a positive average scoring differential. Yeah. Um, you know, Minnesota, for instance, is 10th. Their average scoring differential is plus 0.3 points. Which makes sense because they're in impossibly close games every single week. And All the sometimes time. they get blown out. Kansas City's average scoring differential is fifth at an average of 7.1. So in any given week, they are averaging more than a touchdown advantage over their opponent, regardless of opponent, regardless of home or away. That is incredible. And what it speaks to, when you look at the, the total top five, Buffalo's first, San Francisco's second, Philly's third, Dallas fourth, KC fifth, those are all teams that are complete, good offenses, and for the most part, when they're healthy, good defenses. That's another aspect I want to talk about here. The Chiefs' secondary was physical in this game. Legereus Sneed, I can tell, on like Tuesday morning, they pulled him into the office and said, look, Legereus, we need you to go out there and fight DK Metcalf. We don't need yeah. you to cover him. We don't need you to cover him. We need you to take him out in the alley and fucking fight that guy. And he did it. You could tell he was excited about it. There was there was a play, like, they had him bracketed over the top. And he got called for hands in the face. But he pressed him and just straight up punched him in the face. <laughs> like, there was no qualms about what this type of, what this type of game was. All these DBs were just pressing and harassing these Seahawks receivers and I loved it like if that's the style they're going to play going forward which is like look come hell or high water your receivers are going to be black and blue by the end of the game and if we get beat over the top every now and then like DK did get one long ball down the sideline that's fine we're going to live with it but you're going to earn every yard it's like the opposite of the Vikings where we're playing like 10 yards off and allowing all the easy stiff Nothing came easy for the Seahawks. 
absolutely nothing. They beat up DK. They beat up all the other receivers. Like they were constantly just like collisioning guys, no free releases anywhere, no free meals. I loved it. And I really hope that that's the style they're going to play the rest of the year because that's how they're going to try to beat Cincy. That's how they're going to try to beat Mm -hmm. Buffalo. And, you know, if they go against Philly or Dallas or whoever in the Super Bowl, if they make it that far, you're going to have to do that against A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith. You're going to have to do that against C.D. Lamb. No free lunches against this KC secondary. And they're all young and they're hungry. And my God, they're aggressive. <laughs> and I, that was one of my favorite defensive tapes I've watched the entire year. Yeah, Spagnuolo's no stranger to an alley fight. Like, let's go settle this out there. And he's willing to do it. He has that aggression in his pedigree. Like, that is part of his play calling. And at this point, it, it's every week for DK. Connor, DK kind of reminds me of that guy that got a reputation in the Old West as a gunfighter. Oh, he brings it on himself. Yeah. He, he, was he starts every was, fight. <laughs> was flashy and was fast and says, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll fight you in the street. And every town he goes to. Some kid in the saloon is like, all right, let's fight, Uh right? You want to fight? Let's fight. Let's go in the street. And after a while, that gets tiring, man. It's like, really? Last three towns I was in, I had three fights a day. I'm here. I Okay, let's go have another fight in the street. And that's what it is for DK at this point because he is loud. He is big. He is brash. He is fast. And he's going to tell you about it. And there are a lot of guys lining up on the other side to punch that ticket. And Legereus Sneed was, you know, the latest in the long line. And I think Casey's defense, I mean, I'm sure the defensive line of Casey loves it when their corners are pressing and getting into it and being physical and delaying those releases and giving them an extra half a step on the rush. And that sort of energy builds within a defense and everybody goes, okay, we're all going to fight the guy across from us every play. Like, let's go. And I would rather see Casey doing that. Because the places where Casey's defense has faltered in the last three to four years is when they have given more space. They don't play well. They don't play great with a lot of space given. It's not Spags's cup of tea. Like mm-hmm. he wants to reduce that space and start a fight. And if he has the horses to do it, it works great. And when Casey's suffered injuries or they've had guys go down, especially in the corner uh, position or the linebacker position, and they haven't been able to fill gaps like that, then you see Casey get gashed a little bit and it becomes more of a boat race or, you know, sprint to the finish, which Mahomes is still capable of holding up on his end. But it's tougher and that margin goes down. When Spags has the guys and they're healthy and they're excited about it and he goes and punches people in the mouth and he's aggressive – this KC team gets even harder to beat. Uh, yeah, I really can't wait to see where they end up in terms of seeding. Again, Buffalo, they they have the clearest path to the one seed, but if they slip up at all on Monday and the Bengals spoil it for them, we could see Arrowhead uh, hosting yet another AFC yet Championship another. game this year. What else is new? Uh, three up, number three. We've been kind of monitoring this situation back and forth (laughs) the entire year. The Carolina Panthers will not die. They refuse to go away. And I kind of felt like if there was a team that was going to kind of, you know, put the nail in the coffin here and put them to bed, 
And uh, our, our old friend, I can't remember who it was, that put 80 grand down on the Panthers to miss the playoffs <laughs> in like week three, you know, maybe make him sleep a little bit better at night. Uh, this was the game I thought was going to do it. And nope, Panthers came out there and just like Kansas City, punched them in the mouth. Defensively, offensively, everything. The run game was extraordinarily explosive and they hit on every single concept wide zone inside zone tight zone belly zone duo power you name it they hit an explosive run off of it Deontay Foreman looks unbelievable like this is the best he's ever played in his entire life Christian McCaffrey is an incredible player but they they really don't miss him with this run game like they are still churning and burning and just grinding teams to a pulp the offensive line, especially the left side of the offensive line with Icky, is whew, they're, they're, they're a problem for anybody, and I mean anybody. Detroit just couldn't tackle, and by like the end of the first half, I felt they were broken, completely broken on defense. Like The, the, the will to live was taken from them. And then there was a, a throw that I felt kind of put the nail in the coffin. You know, Detroit was getting desperate here. It was third down. I think it was third and 13, third and 12, third and 13, something like that. They dial up zero, which we talked long time ago this season, how calling so much zero was getting them in trouble, especially in the Miami game. And they stopped calling it after the Miami game, and suddenly the defense got better. Who knew? But they called zero, trying to get a negative play, keeping them out of field goal range. Um, And, you know, I don't know why they stayed in the call, because just based on the offensive formation – you had two extra guys in the backfield. You had an H-back in a sniffer position. Like, they were very clearly saying, like, hey, we're blocking this up. You're not going to get there in time. We're going to hit this post deep down the field when there's no middle safety help. And they just they, they didn't get out of the call. They did not get out of the call pre-snap. Darnold was like, all right, fine. I'll take the free sure. post. Got blocked up as well as you possibly can block up zero. Threw it down the field. Big ball, 50-yard gain scored on the next play and that was it that was it like there was no coming back from that it, it made it like a 31 7 something in that range and like that end of the game right there like there was obviously a lot of time left to play but that end of the game um you know sam darnold himself has been slightly underrated since he he started in week 12 he hasn't been great but he's been enough you know he's been efficient 100 passer rating four touchdowns no picks decently high uh, adjusted completion percentage of 70%. Not the best in the league, but definitely not the worst. He's been serviceable. And as long as this run game churns like it is, and he's making just like one or two good throws like that per game, and the defense is firing on all cylinders, like they're not really that easy of a team to beat when their formula comes together. They only can win in one way. But when that one way works... It works really, really well, EJ. We've said it for weeks now. The Panthers just keep delivering on it. Uh, they've picked a plan and are running with it, literally. Like, that's their plan. And we've talked about them not being able to, you know, move to their other hand, that there is not a second way for them to win. But it is all about this pound and pound and pound and set it up and hit a shot. And they can hit a shot. Like you said, Sam Donard has been able to hit a shot. They did it in this one. The overall turnaround because of that, moving on from CMC, 
getting rid of Matt Rule and saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the guys in this building and we're going to do this and see how it goes. From Rule to Steve Wilkes, the overall tenor of this team and the way we talk about it and the way they look on the field, it's hard to overstate that. It's huge. It's Mm -hmm. massive. It's uh, night and day, whatever you want to call it. And Panthers fans should be excited and Wilkes should get serious consideration because of it, it is very much unlike the Jeff Saturday situation where you, you know, lose the biggest lead in NFL history and then you kind of can't be considered. I I think with what Steve Wilkes has done, you kind of can't not be considered at this point. He's he's done a yeoman's job and this team is competitive. It is mean. It will run you over. It is physical. And we thought that Detroit was all those things with biting kneecaps and turns out. Detroit just doesn't have the defensive horses. Detroit's draft is going to be defense heavy. Again. Lopsided, (laughs) like one-sided. They might pick a tight end out of this great tight end class somewhere in the middle, but I would not be surprised if every other pick for them is on defense because – How many years in a row is it going to be? This is like the third draft in a row that we're we're dialing up a whole bunch of defense for them. How – when is it going to be done – uh, well, that's the thing is you leave a cupboard as empty as Detroit's was. And it really was at the end of the Matt Patricia era. The Matt Patricia era was a throwaway, not only in terms of results on the field, but also in terms of team building, in terms of stocking the cupboard with players. And what Brad Holmes came into was, yeesh, how many of these guys am I going to keep? There's like three. Like, I have to get everybody else. And by the time I get everybody else, those three are going to be aged out and moving on or at the end of their contract and we're going to have to decide whether or not they're worth big money so when you do a house cleaning when we say a you know stud down to the studs renovation it doesn't happen in a year and the offense has been completely real because both sides of the ball were pretty barren it wasn't like they were chock full of stars on one side and they just need help like this was a bad roster one of the worst rosters in the nfl under the patricia regime they have rebuilt it to the point where the offense is in the top third of the league consistently. Like, the offense can win games. Now it is, we need defense and we need a lot of it. So don't be surprised, Detroit fans, when, you know, 80% of your picks come on the defensive side of the ball and you snag a tight end to replace TJ Hawkinson. Like, right now, that looks like the blueprint, depending on how free agency goes, of course, but... That's what they need. If they could stop teams, this is a very dangerous team that can go deep into the postseason. If they keep their defense the way it is, they're not going to win much when the chips are on the table. I just think they need their own DJ reader. Like they're a DJ yes. reader. They're a DJ reader away. You know, somebody who can even up the math yeah, so that they're... you know Malcolm Rodriguez can just fly into the backfield every single play and not give a shit. Like that's what they need. They need a DJ reader. They need a. Uh, uh, a Grover Stewart, you know, uh, something in that mold. <laughs> yep. They just need a, a big, a big fat ass nose tackle that can stop the run. That's what they need. hundred percent build around that. Add some other edge rush to go with Hutchison. He's been doing a great job, but again, he's the, I'm not the one guy. He's one of the few guys out there. That's like, guys, I'm doing everything I can. Like I need, 
some help, and he does. He needs some help. They really need help at every level in the defense. Like, Rodriguez looks like a guy. Keep him for sure. What else at linebacker? <laughs> well, they've invested there. It just hasn't hasn't they, really worked yet. Right, but know? this is the – they need to get that. Again, could be free agency, could be the draft, but Detroit needs to focus on fishing the defense. They need multiple guys. They certainly need somebody in the middle because they have been gashed on the run. Um, so we'll see what they do, but just prepare yourselves, Lion fans. You're going to see a lot of defense in the offseason through free agency in the draft. Carolina, by the way, still in the driver's seat for their own playoff fate. They just got a win out, obviously beating Tampa, um, which is not completely out of the question considering what Tampa looks like this year. Could see them in the playoffs, and uh, unfortunately for that gentleman, losing 80 grand <laughs> on what we thought was the surest of sure bets of all time. I love that not. bet. I thought very seriously about putting some money on there because I was like, Thank they can't. God, you didn't. I was like, they can't <laughs> possibly do this. And that, again, is just credit to Wilkes and that team buying into his leadership and style. And because it, it does take too right it takes steve yeah. wilkes saying this is the way we're going to do it and the players picking up that, that that baton and saying all right we believe we will do it and they both have and yeah that guy is sweating bullets right now um also i don't the panthers haven't played the cowboys this year i don't think yeah they have not um if the panthers win the division that would set up a dallas carolina playoff game which is a much harder matchup, in my opinion, for Dallas than Tampa would be. So, you know, I think there's some rooting interest in Texas for <laughs> for that Carolina-Tampa game coming up pretty soon here. Uh, all right, yeah, just love these stories. We got some playoff teams this year, some new blood that I think people are very excited, at least I'm excited about, like, you know, small market teams that don't get the spotlight. Yeah, sign me up for that. So excited to see how the next two weeks roll out. We got to talk about some unfortunately upsetting parts the opposite end of the coin here with two down let's jump into it leading off two down we have to talk about the rest of the denver disintegration what's left to say mm, a little bit we talked a lot about hackett and how unique that situation is at the top of the podcast at this point, Chernobyl looks like a relatively controlled burn. Uh, this is organizational. We talked about the rust money. We talked about firing your first season coach. We talked about really where they're going to go. Their defensive coordinator not wanting to touch that radioactive interim job because it might tarnish his right now sterling reputation uh, for other jobs that he can consider. And even whether or not the GM, George Payton, who's fairly young in the job, is going to survive all this. This is a core meltdown for a team. It's rough for Denver fans who are watching it. It's rough for us. We predicted this team was going to be part of a super division in the AFC West. They've done the exact opposite. You were talking about KC's schedule at the end of the year. At the beginning of the year, that looked like a really compelling slate, man. Oh, man, Chiefs are going to finish playing the Broncos and the Raiders. This is going to be a slugfest. At this point, we're like, yeah, so those are wins. Yeah. Um, Denver doesn't have a lot of places to go here. They have a lot of players, and what they do next is going to be really interesting. But again, this was the kind of thing you could see coming. This was not a terrible surprise. If you've been watching the sideline demeanor, if you've been watching the players interact over the last 
month to six weeks with each other. It wasn't getting better. We kept saying, well, maybe it'll get better. Maybe it'll gel. Maybe it'll come together. And it kept getting worse. And it ends with an earliest in-season firing in many decades. It ends with an albatross of a quarterback and a quarterback contract that they really can't move on from until the year after next. What are the Broncos going to do here? Well, what's tough is the problems with Russell Wilson. Obviously, Russell Wilson... Who was more at fault between Wilson and Hackett? I, I don't. There's a whole. <laughs> there's some answers to that. Maybe we will never know. Full thirty for thirty there. But if we're just talking about on the field stuff, like what's wrong with Wilson? Is this a play calling issue? Like is protection bad? Are receivers dropping passes? Early on in the year, you know, I was giving the benefit of the doubt to Russ and saying like, "Hey, Jerry Judy's dropping some really catchable balls." Um, Court, Cortland's had some drops. They really missed Tim Patrick. He's their glue guy, the go up and get it guy. You know, offensive line was taking injuries. I was like, there's a lot going on here. Maybe it's not all Russ. You look at the picks against the Rams. I almost don't know which one is worse. And it, it it's what's concerning about it is it's a problem that I truly don't know if it can be fixed. Like if he was hurt and couldn't move, like okay, 2023, maybe he'll be healthier and he can run around if you injured his shoulder you know and just didn't have zip maybe that's something that'll get better in the offseason he's just hurt it's not that it's vision and decision making and I truly out of all those picks I don't know which is the worst one because the first one he threw it straight at a hang defender in cover three like it's the trip side and you're running flood like no shit there's going to be a, a, a curl flat zone defender there and he threw it right at him you know the, the second one they called hank which is one of the most basic common concepts ever the chargers run it every third play i swear to god and he's running uh, and he opted to throw the sit route over the middle against bobby wagner first ballot hall of fame linebacker was his teammate for 10 years saw him every day in practice and he threw it right at him. When I say Adam, like it's more so he targeted of all the people to target on the field. It's Bobby Wagner. You're throwing a sit route against where he's literally just reading number three. And as soon as he sees Dulcich turn his head, he's breaking on it. It's like, okay, that was a dumbass decision, Russ. I don't know why he did that. And then the third one, this one was just weird. Cause like he's, he's rolling from pressure to his right. Cortland Sutton is having a meltdown on the boundary. It's second and four. He's just clapping. He's running. It's like, throw it to me. I have a first down. They're already down by a lot. And Russ sees, was it Judy? It might have been Judy. Like Whoever the, the number two was had a step vertical, right? And he's and he's running vertical. And he, he's got him. Like, it's a touchdown. He's got him. Like, I understand, like, why he threw it because it should have been a touchdown. But – after, and you're looking at the film, and you see he's looking at him with two steps of vertical space, miles of green grass in front of him, and he's stepping and stepping and stepping. He takes eight steps before he throws the ball. And by the time he's releasing it, the receiver's at the 10-yard line. And so it's like you can't lead him because he's already going to be in the end zone by the time the ball gets there. So it's underthrown because he threw it late. Like, if he threw it Real on late. time, it actually would have been perfectly placed, but he threw it super late, like eight steps late. And I don't know why, if he was second-guessing himself or just didn't didn't have good vision on it, I have no idea why. But he threw it super late, and then it got picked off, and Cortland, like, 
Court, I thought he was going to demand a trade immediately after the game. Like he that's how upset he looked. And so I don't know which of these picks is worse because you have poor field vision and understanding of how cover three works. You have actively deciding to target a first ballot Hall of Fame linebacker on a concept that he's seen a million times. And then you have poor field vision and throwing it eight steps later than peak Russ would have when he was working with Lockett. All of that is bad. None of that is something that strikes me as fixable. And I kind of feel like Russ's just brain is broken. And, and how do you come back from that? How do you willingly go into 2023 paying you a gazillion dollars when you can't throw Hank? High school quarterbacks throw that every week. You can't throw Hank? Really? <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's bad, EJ. It's real bad. Well, the first two really get me. Because as we were talking through this and I was thinking about it, I was like, who in the league has seen more cover three in practice than Russell Wilson? I I don't think there is. I mean, maybe nobody. Tom just in aggregate, but in terms of like... Yeah, because he's played longer. <laughs> yeah. But like nobody is the answer. Nobody's seen more cover three in practice than Russ. Nobody. Like he's seen cover three like, his first decade was like playing against one of the greatest cover three defenses ever. Who's seen more of Bobby Wagner, like you said, in practice on, on a particular concept that is not, we're not talking about deep rotations and, and confusing exotic shit, which Russ should still be a master of after a decade in the NFL. He, he should fully understand all that shit, but the first two cover three and Bobby Wagner, Who's seen more cover three in Bobby Wagner than Russ Wilson? And the answer is nobody. And he did it anyways. And then the last one was just like, I don't know. You you probably do. I know you do because we've watched football together. You yell at the TV. Yeah, throw like, it. Come on, throw man, it. throw it. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Then he throws it. And it's the same thing Cortland Sutton's doing on the sideline. Like, throw it to me. If you're not going to throw it to him like five steps ago, throw it to me. I'm still here. I'm still open. I'm past the sticks. Like, yeah, I'm huge. Like, I can catch it. No, nah, nothing. Gets nothing. And all of that is, like you said, not just like, oh, it's at this facet that's not working. Or, oh, we just need to get a coach that's going to compel him to do – no, none of that stuff is like, I mean, what are you going to say? Like, be be better? And for $100 million, that's not a great answer. So the Russ situation, like we said at the top, it's going to be a fascinating watch. Um, it doesn't seem to be anybody besides a Russ problem at this point. It's not the line. It's not the receivers. The concepts are good. The routes are there. They're open. You just got to throw them on time. And he's not doing that, so we, we don't really know what's next for Denver. Something bad, probably. <laughs> Something different Just for going sure. Going off instinct here, each. Yeah. Something bad. <laughs> uh, two down, number two. Um, it, it, this is less of a, a down and more of a mild whimper. Uh, because Washington got put in their place a little bit, and they're still a good team. They're still a fun story. They're still in the playoff hunt. They can clinch in Week 17 with a win over Cleveland, who's on their own little bit of a spiral here. Um, they can clinch in Week 17 with a win over Cleveland, plus the Lions, Seahawks, and Green Bay all losing. Again, not impossible. That would put them in the playoffs, and then they'll probably, re I would imagine they would rest Week 18 at that point, get ready for the wild card round. So they're still a good team. 
but when they ran up against an actual buzzsaw, a true NFC power, somebody that we expect to make the championship game in the conference and maybe even the Super Bowl, third string quarterback be damned, didn't matter. You really saw how much further they have to go to get to that point. And the game started out, you know, fairly even, I would say, like they they hung tough. And they were able to kind of keep up with them early on. You know, there's a little bit of a, a fluky interception from the 49ers early. And they, 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 they stopped the Niners on fourth down at their own 15-yard line. So they were gifted a couple extra possessions from that. But they just couldn't capitalize on it the same way that, say, Dak capitalized on it against Philly. They couldn't turn those into enough points to build enough of a lead to stop that 49ers engine from getting going. Because once you're in the second half and they get that seven-point lead on you and there's like, you know, maybe 20 to 25 minutes left of game time left, that's when D'Amico Ryans is going to do what he does every single game, which is call cover two and then call cover two again and then call it again and again and again and dare you to mount a long drive and score on that defense because they're going to rally, they're going to tackle, they're going to get picks. Fred Warner's going to do Fred Warner things. I mean, there was a 17-play drive in this game that amounted to no points because there's no free lunch against this defense, and they're going to make you do it the hard way. 45%, this is what's crazy, 45% of all coverages called by the Niners in the second half that were not in the red zone was covered too. Like, it's straight up, like, 2005 Bears, Mm -hmm. 2002 Buccaneers, because they have their own, you know, Simeon Rice. They have their own Brian Urlacher. Like, you name all the main components of making that that type of defense work. Incredible, like, weak side edge rusher, incredible Mike linebacker, really physical corners, you know, a will linebacker that will just clean up everything when there's a, a mess made up front. They have all that stuff. And so they're able to really lean into being a basic, predictable defense in the second half that just out-executes you and suffocates you to death. And once Purdy got that seven-point lead in the third quarter, they leaned into that, and Washington's just not good enough to beat it. Not yet, at least. Like, they're not, they're not that far away, but there's still a gap between what they are now and what the 49ers are now, which is a fully armed and operational battle station that you kind of have to out talent. You're not out scheming them. You're out talenting them. And there's only a couple teams in the entire conference that can do that. Commanders are not one of them. So they're a fun story. Still a good chance to make the playoffs. But if we're meeting again in the postseason, you know, Washington 49ers, I'm still taking San Francisco by a pretty healthy margin. This reminded me of another game from the NFC East this season where a team that was scrappy and resourceful and had more wins than you thought it might came up against a true NFC power. And that was when the Giants went met the Eagles and we were like, ah, the Giants give everybody a game. And they ran into the Eagles and Eagles went, nah, (laughs) right? And this wasn't quite like that, but it felt like that at times. It felt desperate from fairly early on, which is why good old Riverboat Ron went for those gambles early on to try and say, we're going to press them. We're going to, you know, and you kind of have to, because if you don't, they're just going to run over you anyways. But they said, we're going to stand up. We're going to toe up with these guys and we're going to, and they found out, right? 
screw around, find out. Toe-to-toe, you're not as good as these guys. And if you come up against them in the playoffs, you're probably still not going to be as good as these guys because you don't have the same amount of horses that they do. You don't have the same level of coaching right now that they do in terms of the ability to adapt and to really hammer home a second lead. You're just not in the same league. You're in the same league, but you're not in the same league. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do Like, in terms of like talent distribution? When Debo comes back, which I think he's just got a, a high ankle, so presumably he'll be back in the postseason. Like, how are you going to match up with him and Kittle and Chris McCaffrey and Ayuk and, you know, Purdy's doing his thing. And then on defense, okay, how are we going to block Nick Bosa? Oh, shit. How are we going to block Fred Warner? Like, they are so unbelievably talented that they just create an impossible scenario for 90% of NFL teams. And if you're that talented that 90% of NFL teams, you know, have to put like a whole bunch of stars on their board for who they have to work, like that's that's a special roster. They have built a special roster to the point where with their third string, seventh round rookie quarterback, I still don't bat an eye about them going to the Super Bowl. I really don't. I, I would 100% believe it. And also, EJ, not to do too much of a 49ers tangent again, if the 49ers win out and they're going on a run, I do feel like Brock Purdy's rookie of the year. I really yeah. do. And we had this discussion on the live stream, like, okay, it's there's Chris Olave. Um, you know, he's had a great year. There's, um, God, who's the uh, – Garrett Wilson – uh, from the Jets, had a great year. But we're talking about a quarterback, which the award is already weighted towards quarterbacks, winning his first three starts for the first time in franchise history. Think of all the great quarterbacks that have come through San Francisco. He's the only one to win his first three starts. Might win every other game for the rest of the regular season. Might win every playoff game. Like, if we're going into NFC Championship weekend with Brock Purdy undefeated, he's probably going to win Rookie of the Year which a Mr. Irrelevant winning Rookie of the Year is the most remotely weird-ass, impossible story maybe of all time. I don't think that has ever happened before, and I don't think it will ever happen again, but the 49ers are so good that it could happen this year, and that's pretty insane. Yeah, and if he had some rando family member that was his absolute booster since high school that put, like, ten dollars on him oh you retire tomorrow yeah you retire tomorrow it's like a hundred thousand to one instant yeah. gazillionaire um you know it is unlikely but if that scenario occurs it is highly likely because of the shine because of the momentum that award has several weights to it one is nationally televised games and results in them the second you mentioned is quarterback and the third is second half of the season Whatever anybody does in the second half of the season is much more important than whatever anybody did in the first half of the season. Brock Purdy obviously did nothing in the first half of the season. He was on the bench. He's had a tremendous second half of the season. He is in bright lights, prime time, getting these things played up, and he is a quarterback. All three of those things work in his favor, and if he basically wins out and is looking at you know a conference championship game and being favored in that, and possibly going to the Super Bowl, yeah, he's winning Offensive Rookie of the Year. Like, I don't want to say going. going I don't want to say going away. Because I think it, going away. I, you know, he will win it. 
and it will be solid for sure because the other guys have had great seasons, but their team's not doing great. They haven't had a ton of primetime games. The Jets have had a fair amount, but Chris Olave has been slaving away in anonymity for the most part in New Orleans. You know, Damian Pierce uh, sort of fading down the stretch a little bit, at least in terms of exposure, not in terms of production. And Brock Purdy's just streaking right now. There's nobody hotter than him in football. So he will win it if that occurs. Uh, All right. Let's get to one-ish fun. All right. uh, One fun this week, which is like one fun, but like two bonus little tiny funs that we still wanted to mention. Uh, But the one main fun, we'll call it that. Marcus Jones, there are not a whole lot of things that have gone right with the Patriots season this year. They are still somehow impossibly in playoff contention. I have no idea how, but they are. Um, The offense has been mostly ass. Um, The defense has really been the only thing that's kind of kept them in a lot of different games. But one of the things that has gone right is Marcus Jones as a rookie showing that he is one of the most versatile most dangerous and most fun players in the league already. He's a good DB, especially in the slot. Great return man, elite return man already. And on offense, every once in a while, you know, they'll throw him a screen. They'll give him a little sweep, anything like that. Just give him a touch and let his explosiveness do the rest. And they basically just try to design opportunities on offense that are quasi punt returns. And, and he's pretty good at those, too. So, uh, Marcus Jones, again, a rookie, unheralded, mostly rookie outside of New England. Um, but you got to pay attention to him going forward because I think he is a, a really, really phenomenal talent that the Patriots have picked up there. For me, it's the all-around part of his game. I liked him a lot on tape. I worried about the size. I loved the special team's value. In fact, I thought that's how he would lead his way into the league that he would start as a special team standout, uh, both as a tackler and as a returner, that he was better than people would think on defense because despite his size, they played him an outside corner a lot at Houston, and this guy's got that dog in him. He went against big guys all the time in college and had good success. Now, he got mossed a bunch of times by T. Higgins, but that's the difference between college and the NFL. So I thought he would be a really good standout on special teams and above average or sort of low key, good defender primarily in the slot because he was so tough. I thought he would transition well there. Didn't expect anything on offense. The Patriots, Bill Belichick might be the perfect landing spot for this because he's willing to do this. He's willing to take a guy, put him wherever, use him however he can be of benefit to the football team. And he's shown that throughout his career. So Marcus Jones gets the benefit of that, but He's been better, I think, everywhere on the field than even I expected him to be, and I really liked Marcus Jones. I had him high in my rankings. It's the fact that he can do it all. It reminds me a little bit, and don't say I'm saying he's the same player. He is not the same player. But that versatility of being a great athlete and being able to contribute anywhere on the football field reminds me a little bit of young champ Bailey. Oh, that's an interesting comp. Yeah, Champ Bailey, very aggressive comp, but I no, I get it. I get it. When whenever you bring up anybody's name who's a Hall of Famer, people are going, "Oh, he's a rookie Hall of Famer." You're comparing? No, no, no. They're not the same player. It's that versatility that they would give Champ Bailey 
snaps on offense occasionally early in his career. It stopped later in his career that he could pop in on special teams and be your best special teamer for the week just because he was a great athlete and he was extremely quick and had great hands. So it didn't matter. Again, offense, defense, special teams, people forget that because Bailey became such a great corner and ended up going to the Hall of Fame for that that he's like, oh, no, this is, Champ Bailey's a way better. You're right. Champ Bailey's a way better everything, but it's that versatility early in the career where you just have a guy that's tremendously talented athletically and has a ton of drive. There's a, there's a little glimmer of Champ Bailey and Marcus Jones. Am I saying he's going to be the same player? No, not at all. That would be silly. But when I watch, I see that same little bit of, put me in, coach. I'll do whatever you want. I'm going to do it really well. You you watch. The last one I remember was like Patrick Peterson in 2011. Because I remember Peterson had like four return touchdowns as a rookie, which was nuts. And like they gave him a, a few snaps here and there on offense just because he was such a great athlete. And like, again, Marcus Jones drafted way, way, way lower than Peterson was, but similar explosiveness. And mm-hmm. I can see that comparison. I really can uh, bonus fun here really quickly. Uh, Justin Jefferson, based on his current average receiving totals per game, has a chance to be the first 2,000-yard receiver in NFL history. I get it. Extra game, 17-game schedule, blah, blah, blah. I understand that. 2,000 yards, 2,000 yards. That's pretty insane. As of right now, his current per-game pace would put him at 1990. So he needs to do his current pace plus 10 more yards and he'll hit 2K and probably wrap up Offensive Player of the Year while he's at it because no way the Vikings are remotely close to where they're at record-wise without Justin Jefferson. Um, so just kind of keep an eye on that. We might have a might have a little bit of a, a, a one fun in the future if he hits that record, which he has a decent chance of doing. And then uh, a weird bonus fact that you saw this week about King Henry. This one caught me off guard. It made me question my own memory and the broadcast team in the Tennessee game Derrick Henry fumbled and I okay that's rare or at least my brain thought that's rare and they said for the third straight game he has fumbles in three straight games and immediately my brain went into sort of panic mode was like wait Henry's not a fumble guy like he has a billion carries and not very many fumbles so I went to the numbers and it's true you know, Derrick Henry's six years into this, and he gets a lot of carries. We're talking about 400 carries some years, so many, many carries. And over, uh, he's played 101 career games over six seasons, and he only has 17 fumbles. That in itself would be pretty good. But he was averaging just over two fumbles a year before this year. He had 11 in his first five seasons. And then this year, he has six including three in the last three games. So yeah, we're not even done is, with the year yet either. We've and still we're got two not more even games. done with the year yet. So you're talking about a guy that has 17 total fumbles in his career. He's had six of those in just this year and three in the last three games. So Derrick Henry can still run it. We saw it on Sunday. He broke away and ran away from some defensive backs with that long-legged stride that we're used to. He is still physical. He can still carry the load, but maybe this is the first – little crack in the armor we're seeing from a guy that has a ton of NFL mileage on him and quite frankly a ton of college mileage before that and, and but, high school mileage before that yeah well <laughs> high school mileage doesn't seem like very many people touched him so I'm not going to count that as much but in terms of Derrick Henry high high workload guy typically very very low fumble guy in terms of fumble rate who this year 
Fumbles are a bit odd, but this is really an aberration in terms of his overall stats within the NFL. And some of them also were like really crucial fumbles, like the one against Mm -hmm. Jacksonville, which, you know, kind of ignited the Jaguars win over them. And like it's it's fumbles in close games that he normally, you know, he's normally the closer. He's not the reason you lose in this year. You know, kind of everything that could have gone wrong for the Titans has gone wrong, including King Henry all of a sudden having a fumbling issue. So it's just kind of one of those years for Tennessee. Um, All right, EJ, let's get to our favorite segment of the show, the bootleg shot of the week. All right, EJ, uh, we have something that I don't think has ever happened before on this week's bootleg shot of the week. We have a tie for the oh, winner. No, a tie. I, I'll be honest. I, I didn't expect that. I thought Chandler Jones was going to run away with this thing, but he ended up tying with Josh Allen, the edge rusher, not the quarterback. Uh, if you remember correctly, Josh Allen, it was on CD Lamb where he kind of got out and he, he uh, <laughs> let's, he, he did not give free access to CD Lamb, I think is the appropriate coaching terminology. Put him flat on his ass. Uh, and and CD was just kind of sitting there going like, okay, well, there goes that route. <laughs> you know, completely ruined the play for him. Uh, so Josh Allen, you know, giving a little bit of revenge for all those chip blocks tied with Chandler Jones, who was the odds-on favorite, ended up tying here. Stiff arming Mac Jones to the ground on his uh, weird game-winning pick six that Jacoby Myers never should have thrown, but decided to throw anyway. One of the weirdest plays uh, possibly in NFL history, but Chandler Jones uh, absolutely posterizing Mac Jones. So to celebrate both of them, I have a very special whiskey. Four Roses small batch is going to be my shot for today. I uh, decided to go with something not absinthe for this one didn't want to hurt myself what do you got each uh i was gonna ask you what you were drinking and who you were gonna take the shot for because i figure we'll each take a shot for one of them i have a little bit of monkey shoulder that my wife got me for christmas Um, hadn't had anybody hadn't had any monkey shoulder in a bit um and this is batch 27 the little gold embossed up here so it's hand selected by the brewer monkey shoulder as a specific batch so maybe small batch monkey shoulder i guess um, which sounds like a great band name. Um, <laughs> Small Batch Monkey. Yeah, over on the Coachella side stage. That's Small right. Small Batch Monkey Shoulder. I'm playing with my band this weekend. You want to come see us? <laughs> What's your band's name? Small Batch Monkey Shoulder. Like, okay, oh cool. Um, so who do you want to pick for the shot? Uh, I'll go Chandler Jones because I know that, right. that Josh Allen is near and dear to your heart. So uh, I will I will take the Josh Allen revenge shot. To you, uh, Chandler, salute. Whoa, that's 45? Woo. Okay, that that does not taste 45. 43, and uh, it it did taste 43. (coughs) Okay. Hello, Four Roses. All right, that's good morning, Four Roses. I'm used to that being a sipping whiskey, not a shooting whiskey. I think it will (laughs) remain a sipping whiskey in this household. (sighs) Hello. You have solidified its place in the pantheon of sippers. Oh, God. that's Wild Turkey one-on-one goes down smoother than that. Wow. That's not... For those of you that are not familiar with the good old turkey, the the hot turkey, uh, that is not 
a sterling recommendation for a shooting whiskey. However, Four Roses, excellent stuff. Just take it slow. Makes an excellent old-fashioned, and I will keep it that way. No more shooting for me. Uh, so congratulations to you, Chandler Jones and Josh Allen. If you randomly ever happen to watch this, you're our bootleg shot of the week winners. This week, we have five more incredible nominees that you can vote for down in the pinned comment below. Number one, we got DJ Reader with a... Mentioned him earlier in the show. This is the kind of stuff that we need Detroit to get. You know, somebody who could take on a double team and corkscrew down into the ground, get off the block, make a stop, first and goal, leading to a forced fumble that uh, all but iced the game for Cincy during that late game surge for the Patriots. Uh, DJ Reader, my opinion, best nose tackle in the league, and it's plays like that that are why incredible play this was my one must so brett and i occasionally sort of put a star by one of these and go don't care what you do with the rest of them this one's going in the slate this is the one i put top and this is the one i put my star by this week if you are interested in what good nose tackles do and i will say great nose tackles do this is it this is what they do on a play-by-play basis and we don't normally put them in shot of the week because they play in tight spaces and you don't get a lot of dynamic hits. You don't get big, rangy impact, right? This is both. This is him doing his job at the highest level in the league and the impact on the running back that he delivers in a very short area. It's like a one-inch punch. He knocks the snot out of the running back with no head start. This is a great, great play. Option number two, we got Alec Ingold, favorite of the show. Um, <laughs> it was 55 for the Packers. It's not. Enigbare. Is it Kingsley? Okay, that's, I was yep. wondering if it was him. Um, he tried to kind of like sidestep the block and go inside shoulder, and Ingold just was like, okay, you're going to give me that leverage advantage. I'm going to take advantage of it. <laughs> just sent him literally flying into the end zone of that touchdown run. Ingold was so jacked up after it because he knew that he made a highlight play that Coach McDaniel was going to point out in the film room. Um, Amazing, amazing block by him. Uh, Jordan Roos, option number three. A a very different kind of offensive line shot of the week. Uh, Literally tackling his quarterback into the end zone to give Malik Willis his first career touchdown. Grabbed him by the shoulder pads. And uh, I kind of equate it to if you're a Lord of the Rings fan when Aragorn grabbed Gimli and tossed him. Literally the same thing. Grab Malik Willis, toss him in the end zone. Uh, option number four, Jihad Ward. Had, had a very interesting career Jihad Ward has. I feel like he's remade his body like four times now. Every once in a while, he'll just pop up with a totally different frame. Uh, wearing the rare 55 for an interior rusher, by the way. Uh, put a spin move uh, and, and just completely flatten Kirk Cousins. Respect to Kirk, by the way, because if you're watching the end zone angle of the All-22 you could see that he he saw Ward coming. He knew what was about to happen to him, but he stood tall in there, fired the ball off to J.J., and then just took a whale of a hit on the back end. But respect to Kirk for taking that one. And then last but certainly not least, Malcolm Roach uh, on Deshaun Watson after Watson's interception. This one was funny to me because as Roach was running down the field, you can kind of see like he was putting two and two together of like, wait a minute. I'm allowed to hit the quarterback, and I won't get flagged. So he just blasted Watson as hard as he possibly could, knowing that he had full immunity, no flags were coming out, he could do whatever he wanted, crushed him, absolutely crushed him. 
great hit by Roach. So a uh, strong field of nominees this week, EJ. Yeah, a variety. The ruse one was, hey, it's Malik Wills' first touchdown, but literally grabbed his quarterback and chucked him into the end zone for his first <laughs> touchdown. Legal play, by the way. Uh, the Jihad Ward hit, I, I just want to say to Cousins, when we talked earlier in the show about Zach Wilson not necessarily doing some of the in-structure things you need to do in the offense, it's one of them. Right. This is I don't want to say it's a Cousins specialty because that sounds like a backhanded compliment, but Kirk Cousins is a tough customer. He played in the Big Ten. He is fully. Yes, he knew this hit was coming. He could see it. It came right up the middle. He saw his blocker get beat. He saw the free path to himself. He kept his eyes downfield, delivered the ball and then took an absolute TNT blast right in the chest. You don't see Zach Wilson square up and do that very much. And sometimes, as an NFL quarterback, as unpleasant as it is, that is what you have to do to make the play. That's the job. We've even seen Brock Mm -hmm. Purdy do it over the last three Mm -hmm. weeks. Sometimes, very late in the play, it's like, well, this guy's going to get to me, but that's going to take two steps, and I can release this ball in one step. So I can get the ball off before he gets here, but, boy, it's not going to be pleasant after that. And you have to do it anyways. Cousins has been doing it for years. Zach Wilson never really showed that part in his game. And it is sort of one of those requisite skills, among others, that you have to display in the pocket to be a successful NFL quarterback. Hell of a slate this week. Highly entertaining, versatile slate. Again, if you want to vote for whatever your favorite happens to be down in the pinned comment below, uh, feel free to drop that down there. We'll tally up all the votes and then get back to you next week with the winner on next week's show, which is going to be a monster one. Monster one, because we have some crazy games on the docket this Sunday. EJ, take it away for our Week 17 watch list. We would be remiss if we didn't list Bill's Bengals as the top of the slate here. Joey B putting his Kingslayer rep to the test. Big playoff implications. We talked about those throughout the show. Don't need to belabor that. Panthers Bucks NFC South on the line. If Panthers beat the Bucks here, despite the NFC South's not exactly sterling reputation this season, Panthers can get into the playoffs. Vikings Packers. If we're talking about who's hot right now, not the records. Throw the records out. This one is a toss-up. Here's your bonus weird fun stat of the week. Matt Lafleur is undefeated as the Packers coach in December. Really? He has never lost a game as the Packers coach in December. Huh. Huh, indeed. I I think it's going to change this week, but we'll see. It might. We'll see. But we are seeing Aaron Rodgers resurge, right? This is a resurgence from 12. He has not been who he thought, who we thought he was through most of the first half of the season. He is back on brand. He's making all those Aaron Rodgers plays that are so frustrating for opponents. So this is a much more even matchup uh, than we thought it might be earlier in the year. Uh, Ravens Steelers. Again, this is always just slobber knockery. Like it's (laughs) AFC North, just bashing, Um, throw the records out primetime December cold game doesn't matter what it's for they're they just kind of want to punch each other and they're gonna they always do 
The fascinated watch by is the Jets Seahawks. Mike White coming back as the quarterback. We talked about that. Seahawks coming off a loss that was somewhat expected to KC, but is a little disappointing. Again, the Seahawks think this year's Seahawks team thinks they're going to win every game. That's why they've won so many. Um, two out of the three of our best draft teams from the podcast we recorded the night after the NFL draft ended uh, going against each other. So tons of great young talent on the field to watch in this one. All right. Well, a little bit of a extended episode compared to our usual, uh, our usual lot here, but we had a lot to go over and we're going to have even more to go over next week. I expect that uh, all these meaty episodes will continue as we get further and further into December and January, because there's just too much damn good football right now, EJ. Uh, what do you got coming over on bears over beers? Bears over beers. We had a triumphant return last week after a two-week hiatus. Really talking about what's left for anybody that's still watching the Bears season. Um, we'll probably talk a little bit about whether or not they should shut down Justin Fields. I know it's not a popular opinion. Yes. It's yes. Yeah. The answer is yes, CJ. <laughs> you and I agree on this. Many Bears fans will not. It is really the what only do you, what thing. What do you have to gain? It's not what you have to gain. That's not how NFL fans think. And strangely enough, the Bears played the Bills this last week, so I had good back and forth with our buddies over at Rockpile, Drew and Chris. But Chris specifically asking me questions about the Bears after I did a podcast hit for them and watching the game. He's like, has your run defense always been this bad? Because, you know, James Cook went gallivanting through the Bears secondary. And I said, look, there's nobody left. If they haven't been traded or they're not on IR, that's it. That's all that's left. I mean, even Jack Sanborn's on IR now. So the, the guy that I came know. in to replace the guy that got traded is now on IR. It's a bunch of guys. They just don't have anybody left. They're a lot like Detroit. They need a lot on defense. But even the stars they had, Eddie Jackson, uh, you know, Jalen Johnson, still out there, still doing his thing, should say that. But other than that, it's just Jalen Johnson and a bunch of guys who are replacing the bunch of guys that got traded or on IR. So it's not unexpected. But we'll talk about whether or not they should shut down Justin. From a health perspective, yes, of course they should. From a why should I watch the last few games, um, yeah, it could be a contentious opinion. So that's what we got. Contentious opinion, but the answer is yes. <laughs> you and I agree. <laughs> uh, for me, I got no film rooms this week. Uh, going out to Utah tomorrow for my wife's birthday. Going out to Bryce Canyon to see it in the snow. Because uh, Bryce Canyon in the snow is fucking pretty, I believe Beautiful. is the terminology the kids use these days. Yep. So we're going out there, come back a little bit after New Year's because my wife is a New Year's baby. She's born on January 1st. So uh, she'll be out there in the desert for a little while. Come back next week for, uh, oh, I will be watching the games obviously because i'm you know i do have however a job to do but we will not be doing a thursday night stream this week because true true because, because i will be somewhere in st george utah on thursday maybe potentially great so. mountain biking in st george but uh if you send me some snapshots of the prize pick lines i will put oh, out some we'll, prize pick we'll lines get slips going we'll get i will slips put going. out some prize pick lines that i like that if you wish and live in a state where prize picks is legal you could put together and potentially win some money potentially win a lot of money if our if honestly ej is better at this than i am and that says a lot <laughs> but he's, he's responsible for like 70 percent of our winnings this year so whatever lines ej or whatever slips ej does this week just tail that you're probably going to make something. So uh, thank you to Prize Picks for sponsoring. Thank you to all of our executive producers, Marat, Consti, Caden, Andrew, Taylor, Liam, Connor, Joey, and Mike. We appreciate all of you immensely. 
Once again, um, if you want to take advantage of that prize picks deposit bonus, you can get $100 extra, at least up to $100 extra on prize picks. They'll match your deposit up to that $100 using promo code bootleg at the link down in the description below. Thank you, everybody. Uh, hope you had a wonderful Christmas. Hope you have a great New Year's, and we will see you next week. Take care.